Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Allison K. Williams. She is the author of Seven Drafts, Self-Edit Like a Pro from Blank Page to Book. She has edited and coached writers to deals with Penguin Random House, Knopf, Mantle, Spencer Hill, St. Martin's, and Independent Presses. She's guided essayists to publication in The New Yorker, Time, The Guardian, The New York Times, McSweeney's, and TED Talks. As social media editor for Brevity, she inspires thousands of writers with blogs on craft and the writing life. A former circus performer, Allison has written for NPR, CBC, The New York Times, The Christian Science Monitor, Creative Nonfiction, McSweeney's, Kenyon Review Online, and Traveler's Tales. Her plays, including Mark Twain Award winner Hamlet and London Fringe Best of Fringe winner True Story, have been produced worldwide. Welcome, Allison. Hi, Ronit. I am so (laughs) psyched to be here. I'm so happy to have you here, and I'm so happy that you're happy to be here. Uh, You know, I just, I've been following your work. I mean, I knew about you for years and years before we started communicating on Facebook and in the Writer's Bridge and the community, and you have won, like, didn't you win an award at Hippocamp? I did. Tell, Tell me about that award. What was that? I, so in uh, 2021, I was named the Literary Citizen of the Year at the Hippocamp Creative Nonfiction Conference. And it was so funny because Donna Tallarico, who is the editor-in-chief of Hippocampus, which is the magazine that sponsors the conference, she was standing up at the, the podium. And, you know, I'm like in the back where I sit and I have my laptop open <laughs> and I'm, you know, making some notes for myself about people I need to follow up with and everything. And Donna starts kicking in and saying, you know, oh, you know, this person does this and this person does that. And I'm like, wow, that person sounds really cool. They really <laughs> deserve this award. And then all of a sudden she called my name and I'm like, like, wait, what? But it was a real honor because I, I really came to a decision. And when we talk about why I wrote seven drafts, you know, one of the reasons is that not everybody can afford an editor. Not everybody can afford to go to a workshop. Not everybody can afford to go to a fancy residency. And so I really wanted to put everything that I knew into one place where people can get most of what I have to say about writing for $17.95, or they can get it from their public library for free. And I really made a resolution that I wanted to value my time by no longer doing nickel and dime gigs. Like I would rather do a big chunk of stuff for free, like you know, speaking at conferences that don't have a huge budget, like blogging for brevity, uh, like being on, you know, a beautiful podcast like this where I can speak to writers and then not work for cheap. And and that's something mm-hmm. that I would really encourage anybody who's selling their creative services, find out what you're really happy to give away and give it away with both hands and then charge top dollar for the stuff you want to be paid for. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. I don't think I realized that that equation works so well, but it makes sense. That way, 
I think what you're saying is you don't have to feel badly about charging what you're worth to writers who may or may not have the money because the people who have the money and the funds and are motivated to hire you for that top dollar to help with their book or their projects can do it. And then the rest of the people who can't can access your resources. Exactly. Exactly. I spent, uh, before I was a full-time writer and editor, I spent many years as a full-time circus performer. And a lot of what <laughs> I did was street performing. And I really love how, you know, when I set up that trapeze rig on the street and my partners and I did, you know, fire eating and whip cracking and acrobatics and aerial fabrics. And at the end of the show, everybody got to see the show. And then the mm -hmm. people who can afford to pay put money in our hat and subsidize the people who can't afford to pay. But everybody mm -hmm. got to see the show. And I love that. You know, so I do some personal coaching. I do some fancy destination retreats. But I also do the Writer's Bridge and speak to writers every other week for an hour about building platform and how to get their words into the world. And I, I love balancing giving stuff away with doing what I love for a living. I have a list of questions, Allison, that I'm dying to dive into, but you've already said so much that I want to kind of get to right now. First of all, the circus thing, which I've heard about, you know, and I've seen some photos from your Instagram about that life. Can you just give me a little bit of background about how you came to become a circus performer and how long you did that? Yeah, so... When I was a little girl, my birthday came around at the same time of year that the circus came to town in St. Petersburg, Florida. And we were the first stop every year for the new Ringling Brothers show. And my grandmother took me every single year. I always thought it was wonderful. Um, I got into the to Ringling Brothers as a dancing girl, but decided to go to theater school instead. Also got accepted to clown college, but decided <laughs> to continue in theater school instead. But once I started teaching as a professor at Western Michigan University, I was, you know, 24, 25 years old at that point. I had never done well in gymnastics. I had never been a particularly good dancer, you know, not really a whole lot of physical skill. When I started, I could not do a single pull up. Oh, wow. um, I had a couple of students who were really into aerial, which was brand new then. Like nowadays, every single mm -hmm. yoga studio has an aerial yoga class. <laughs> but back then, nobody had seen it or heard about it. And two of my students were into it and wanted to practice. And they had equipment. And I had keys to the theater. So we started practicing together. And we thought, this is so cool we should do a show. And I had done a little bit of performing at Renaissance festivals around the country and thought, okay, that's really neat. And we started doing those. And then we also started doing these things called busker festivals that happen all mm. over Canada and all over Europe. And then we got into doing corporate events where you know we're hiding in the ceiling and then the <laughs> music kicks in and we do a big routine and then we slide down and give Rolex watches to the salespeople of the year. And, and I just love it so so much and I was doing I did that for 10 or 11 years I think and wow. then I started to hit a stage where I was like okay I am getting a little bit 
older. My knees feel a little bit crappier the next day. My muscles mm. take a little bit longer to heal. And gosh, I'm standing between two 24-year-olds and we're all wearing <laughs> the same spandex outfit. <laughs> oh, and I had always been a writer. I had always, uh, I think I'm also an editor by nature. And I started doing more of that and then transitioned out of circus after about 15 years total. Okay, so I was actually thinking to ask you, where did writing come in? Because I, it sounds like you're a natural performer, and I, I do get this question sometimes because I used to do theater mm-hmm. and, and, and film a little bit, and people ask me sometimes, how do they merge, or what, what skills do you take from that previous career into writing? And what about you? Would you say that there's any crossover for you? Well, I'm sure you know that, you know, as actors, we do so much text analysis and we Mm -hmm. think about dramatic arc and we think about dramatic structure and we stand on stage and we think to ourselves, huh, why is my character in this scene? What do I want here? And I often tell writers, you know, we would be better writers if our characters looked up at us from the page and said, "Um, excuse me, why am I in this scene? (laughs) What is my purpose here? (laughs) And I mean, I had been writing my own words since I was a little kid dictating to my mom before I could hold a pencil. And then I started this practice when I was in middle school and writing terrible middle school poetry. And before a poem could go in my beautiful hardback journal with the silver unicorn on it, it had to be exactly right. And so Mm -hmm. I would copy and recopy everything I wrote, rewriting the entire thing again and again and taking out any words that didn't belong. And so Mm -hmm. that's been my natural instinct. And I I think Mm -hmm. I've I've always been an editor. And so I had done casual editing for friends and then I got my MFA uh, in playwriting actually. And that taught me so much about dramatic structure, about character arc, about motivation, about what a scene is. And I started editing for money and I was like, oh wow, this is really cool. This is this yeah. is an actual job. And right. I found too that I love teaching and the teaching really fills that performer part of me. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I do feel that too when I when I have taught, I feel like that idea of taking the space over and not being afraid of being the center of attention and trying to communicate really taps into that and the Mm -hmm. authority which is different somehow because when I was acting I didn't always feel like I had authority I would be a little insecure about what I was conveying or my choices sometimes but as a teacher the more you do it I feel like the more confidence you get and it's really affirming I feel like especially for people who have done theater so This is really interesting to me that you kind of always were an editor. And also what I'm hearing, which is really different from my approach, is when I was younger, no matter what I embarked on, I wanted to just be good at it out of the gate. I just had this idea that if I found the right thing, I would just be good at it and wouldn't need to work at it, which is hilarious. But it sounds like you knew early on, no matter what it was that you were pursuing, that it took work and you had to keep trying to get what you wanted uh, into the world. Would you say that's accurate? I think so. And I think some of it too was what I learned about tools. And this is something that I try to teach other authors as well. Having the right tools can really be a make or break. And whether those tools are your typewriter or the way you arrange your calendar, 
I didn't write very much at all between about fifth grade and about 10th grade because the act of writing physically hurt my hand. And this was just about when word processors were starting to come in. We didn't all have laptops at home, but we all had Atari. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I got this typewriter that let you type a whole sentence and then fix it, and then you'd hit return and it would print the whole sentence, it was like a light switched on for me. And for 10th grade English class, I did this research paper that turned out to be my entire grade because I basically did no other assignments. But I wrote like a 37 or 38 page research paper that was portraits of different people I knew from the Renaissance Festival and what their lives were like. And mm -hmm. even looking back now, I mean, yeah, I was in high school, but it was a very sort of documentary oriented project. And I never would have done it if I had had to write it by hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what I notice about Seven Drafts is that it's incredibly dense, like it's chock full. And I mean that in an amazing way. There's so many resources. There's so much. And I feel like you get to the heart of things really succinctly. So can you just explain a little bit about the book now that we know what inspired you to write it? <laughs> just a little bit about the book for people who don't yet have it. Yeah, absolutely. So many years ago, I was speaking to a writing group in Bombay, India, and somebody asked me, well, how many drafts does it take? Because I was saying, you know, it always takes more drafts than you think. And I said, okay, well, you need a draft to just get it on the page. That's your vomit draft. You need a draft to really think about the story and make sure that hangs together. One where you polish up the characters. You need a draft where you go through and just fix all the sentences. Then you copy edit it really nice and then incorporate feedback from a friend. And then you call in your professional favor or you pay money and get a professional quality read. And I was like, oh, seven. It's take seven drafts. <laughs> and I wanted to organize most of what I know about writing in a way that is a little bit overwhelming. Um, I had a hashtag that a writer friend created for me and it's fire hose me because people say that coming to my workshops is like getting hit in the face with a fire hose full of information. <laughs> I always tell people you got to watch the replay. You got even if you're here live, yeah. you got to watch the replay. And so the book is organized in the order that you might write a book in. And you can go through it in any order that you like. And there's actually a handy self-editing checklist at the back where if you want, you can just go through the section that applies to your work the most and, and use those elements. Mm -hmm. But I really just wanted it to be a little bit more methodical. I was, I was talking to another editor earlier tonight, and we were saying that you know even in an MFA program, workshopping is not the same thing as teaching the skill of writing. Mm. And I find that I've had some really wonderful, really amazing teachers, and they taught me how to write spontaneously. They taught me how to write to a prompt. They taught me how to incorporate sensory detail. But nobody ever sat down and said, this is what makes this sentence good, and that is mm. what makes that sentence not good. This mm. is what makes this story hang together, and that is what makes the story not hang together. And so I really approach writing from a, from a craftsman perspective. I mean, talent, mm -hmm. is, talent is great, talent is lovely, but you know, it's like drawing or playing the violin. We can all learn to write a book mm -hmm. competently. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also, it is sort of an all-encompassing view. I feel like almost the image I got was like, you are like have a swivel-headed, like you're able to look really close on the very micro level and also on the macro level. And what I wonder is, I know that you enjoyed it and you felt like you were onto something with the editing, but wonder when you first understood that your advice and your feedback was really helpful to people. So back in about 2011, 2012, a former high school friend of mine started a writing contest. It was on an old school blogging site called Live Journal. Uh, whoop whoop to those of you who remember Live <laughs> Journal and, and long may it rest in peace. Um, but the deal was it was called uh, The Real Live Journal Idol and it was structured like a reality show. And every week there was a prompt and you had to write write something that in some way related to the prompt. You know, you could write a poem, you could write a diary entry, you could write a short story, anything you wanted, but it had to in some way address the prompt. And every week people voted and then the people with the least votes, you know, quote unquote, went home. Well, I probably Mm. wouldn't have started the contest if I realized it was going to take 10 months. But it took 10 months and we started with 365 people at the beginning. And I realized I would like to win this contest. And you had to get other people to be willing to vote for you. So I resolved to raid every single person's post every single week. And over the course of 10 months, I probably read three or 4,000 posts. And Ah. because we started with 365 people. Mm -hmm. And I quickly discovered that the stuff that got people to like me was if I gave them some genuine, honest, feedback about what was really working in their piece and a genuine, honest, helpful thought about what they could do even better, what they could improve Mm. even more as they, you know, continued working on it. Mm. And I started noticing everybody has the same problems. Everybody who's at the same Mm. stage of their writing has the same issues at the sentence level, at the story level. And people started going, oh yeah, you got to ask Allison for advice. You know, you got to, you got to run that mm-hmm. by Allison, see what she thinks. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is, this is what I really love doing. I really like helping people make their writing better. Mm-hmm. Are you able to enjoy books uh, just without putting your editor glasses on? Can you suspend I that? I am. I am. <laughs> it's a different feeling when you're reading a book on an e-reader or in your hand than when you're scrolling through a manuscript on a laptop. It feels very different. And also, I tend to read genres that I don't edit very much. I mean, I love reading historical fiction. I love reading um, old-fashioned mysteries. And neither one of those are things that come across my desk very often. <laughs> OK, yeah, I was, I was going to hope that you can find enjoyment there and take a break from the editor editing. So what is it like to? be an editor as well as a writer and how do you balance your time working on other people's pieces and and lecturing and and doing these retreats and creating your own projects that you want in the world so you know the generative time for yourself plus the brass tacks editing that follows like how do you balance that Oh, I'm a terrible balancer. I, I don't balance it. I balance it poorly. Um, mm. What I end up doing is 
I recognize that I am not a daily writer. A, a lot of people are daily writers, and I think of them as, you know, they're like the people who like to go to the gym. They want to show up every day. They want to do a little bit. They want to build on that little bit the next day, and so on and so on and so on. I am a binge worker. And Roni, you know this, you know, back in the theater, you think about your idea for like five or six months, and then mm. you all sit in a room and you go, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then you have six weeks to finish the entire thing in front of a hard deadline because that mm. audience has tickets and they will be in those seats whether <laughs> you are done or not. And so... It took me a really long time. Like there were years where I was like, oh, I must not be a real writer because a real writer would write every day. A real writer would want to write every day and I don't want to write every day. Then I wrote seven drafts and one of the things I discovered was that I did my outline and I filled in the, you know, the material that I already had from you know, blogs and even Facebook comments and stuff that I knew I wanted to revise and make into part of the book. And then I checked into a hotel for six days and wrote 40,000 words. Oh and gosh. then I came out and took a look at what I had and then a couple weeks later I checked into the hotel again and I wrote another 40,000 words. I am a binge writer. You really I wanna, are. Yeah, I want to put all my stuff in place and then I want to write it all at once with my total focus on that. I turn the phone off. I turn the email off. I don't do any client work at all. Mm. I just am selfish with my time. And so for me, finding time to write in between editing other people's projects is carving out those spells where, okay, I just finished uh, leading a retreat in Tuscany and it was lovely to read 11 other people's writing and give them feedback and help them write better. And then I disconnected everything and went to the Netherlands for three or four days because I love the Netherlands, but as, as an excitement level goes, it's not that exciting a country. <laughs> and just focused on my work for three or four days. And, and I carve out those little spaces that are specifically for my work. Yeah, and I appreciate that so much because I, I know as a younger writer, I was told or I feel like a lot of people would say, you have to do it. You have to wake up every morning at blah, blah, blah time. You have to do it no matter what. And I couldn't do that. And I know a lot of writers can't do that. Our lives are not that predictable. People so, have children. They have spouses. Yes. They have dogs. Yes, it doesn't mean that you're less serious or that you care less. It just means that you have to do it when you can do it. And while I'm not a binge as in binge binge with a capital B like what you are describing, I would say that I'm a little feast or famine myself. Mm -hmm. When you write and you're you know, doing the idea, the vomit draft, for example, for yourself, are you able to suspend the editor voice inside of you to just create Yes and no. So <laughs> when I write, uh, particularly when I'm writing fiction, it flows when it comes. Um, I've been uh, working on a, a young adult novel where I wrote the first half of it, and that was actually daily writing because I was meeting two writer buddies at a coffee shop like three days a week. And I would sit down and I would write a thousand words and then that would feel like enough for the day. But the next day, I would revisit the thousand words I had done the day before fix that and then move forward from there because that process of rereading and tweaking helped me get back into the flow of the story and my other great secret is to have a playlist that specifically suits the book like i have my get up get started song at the beginning and then like songs that remind me of the theme or the story or the characters and that helps me shut down that editor brain 
Mm, yes, music. I haven't written with music in some time, but it was especially helpful for me when I was doing fiction. I haven't done it as much with memoir, but I feel like that could also be really helpful. Um, and, and speaking of memoir, um, I would love to shift a little bit and concentrate now on my memoir questions Absolutely. Um, if that's okay with you yeah yeah I just want to slide in one quick thing yeah. which is where playlists are really helpful for memoir is when you play the songs from the time period oh yeah I just was like feeling that because there really are some songs like from the late 70s and 80s that just really encapsulate my experience, um, mm -hmm. like painfully so and very, very nostalgically so. Okay, so in, in your book, in one of the sections about memoir, you write the following. Yes, the great gift of memoir is showing readers, quote, you're not the only one who felt like this, but... Unless you are writing National Book Award level prose, our personal pain is not enough, no matter how honestly we express it. Okay, so this is really important, and I'm hoping you can talk about what makes memoirs compelling beyond the recognition readers might experience, you know, from finding themselves reflected in, in a memoirist story. So I think a big thing to remember is reader takeaway. And these days I'm much more seeing memoirs sell and, and sell for fairly good deals, not even so much because there is a specific platform, but because there is a specific cultural relevance and a specific reader takeaway. So for example, I worked with a wonderful writer, uh, Karen Fine, who is a doctor of veterinary medicine. And when Karen started her book, the book was, my dog died and I felt real bad and I had breast cancer and I felt real bad and it kind of sucked. And it wasn't poorly written, but it was basically, it was one person's experience. It didn't expand outward. And what Karen morphed the book into was much more a sense of, what do we learn from our pets about mortality? What kind of obligation do we have to our pets about their mortality? And mm. many of the beta readers came away going, oh man, now I feel like I have a way to think about how much care do I owe my animal versus how much money do I have to spend on my animal's end of life care? And the book will come out from Penguin Random House next year. And now it's called The Other Family Doctor, A Veterinarian's Look at Love, Loss, Mortality, and Mindfulness. And so wow. it still includes Karen's breast cancer journey. It still includes Karen's journey of the dog of her heart, you know, dying over a long period of time. But it's much more oriented towards what will the reader get out of this? What will the reader take that they can take into their own lives? And I think this is one of the strongest reasons as well. If you're writing a book that has a death, don't open with the death because you are asking us to show up at a stranger's funeral and then listen to your eulogy about them before we have had any time to care about who they are and why they matter. And so if you're writing a book that involves death or serious illness, remember that it's still gotta be your story and part of the way that you can love and honor the person that you're writing about is by telling your own story about how to deal with that experience and letting readers experience that with you. 
So are you feeling like those are the kinds of memoirs that are, are actually getting deals and selling these days? I do think so. Um, Tia Levings, who is a wonderful, wonderful writer and is very active in the ex-fundamentalist community. You know, she really found her niche, which is talking on TikTok to people escaping the abuses of fundamental religions. Um, Karen, my, my veterinary friend, has no platform at all. Her only platform mm -hmm. is I'm a veterinarian, so I know what I'm talking about. But there's a strong reader takeaway in both of those books because it's about mm -hmm. what can I take into my life. Um, Michelle Boldler wrote an incredible book called Is Rape a Crime? And so instead of writing about I had a sexual assault and boy, it felt real bad, she instead took the idea of I had a sexual assault and then I never heard from the police again. What happened? And who else is this happening to? And if mm -hmm. we have something that we say, oh, it's a crime, but most of it's not reported, and of the ones that are reported, most of them aren't caught, and of the ones that aren't caught, most of them aren't prosecuted, and of the ones that are prosecuted, most of them aren't convicted, can we really say that our society thinks this is a crime? And all of a sudden you have this, you know, horrible, but also incredible, large cultural question of, is something a crime if we don't treat it like a crime, if we don't punish it like a crime? And mm. it's very personal about her journey through this experience, but it is also a book that I think every, every person will find something to identify with and to think, huh, this is something I had not considered from this perspective before, and it's, it's you know, horribly fascinating. So interesting, too, because I wonder, for example, with the veterinarian, that it sounds like the basic story was there, the loss mm -hmm. and the experience that she had. But you kind of, it sounds like, uh, for lack of a better you know, expression, you like panned out and made it a little more universal or a little bit more relatable beyond the individual story she was telling. But I wonder if, you know, what happens to a writer who can't do that or doesn't know how to do that. Not that that means their book is not going to sell, they'll never publish. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But I guess it sounds like it behooves a writer of memoir to see how else their story could resonate. And with Karen's book, we broke it apart into scenes on post-it notes and stuck them on the wall and moved them around to see what's the story that we have to say. And mm -hmm. I think people underestimate how important plot is in memoir. I write in seven drafts, paying attention to your plot will help your memoir matter to the reader. Just like a novel, you must engage them in your problem in the beginning, give them hope you'll solve the problem and fear that you may not. And what we run into with memoir is that our scenes, and they may be lovely, beautiful little jewels of scenes, but they're joined with and then. And a series of experiences is not a story. A story is joined with but or because or therefore. So, you know, I went to the park and then I jogged around the corner and then I met my ex-husband and then and then it's not it's not a story. It's just a mm -hmm. series of experiences. But I was feeling really sad about my life, therefore I went to the park, but because it was raining outside, I had to jog really fast to get warm, therefore I slammed into my ex-husband coming around the corner, but he looked at me and said, 
oh my goodness, Jane, I've been thinking about you all day. And all of a sudden we have a story and we want to know <laughs> yes. what happens. And yes. I would say my number one tip for, for memoirists is really if you can sit down and write out the events in your story and join them with but, because, and then either so or therefore. Each event is either an interruption, a consequence, or a motivation to do the next thing. And that's how we can transcend from, hey, here's my life and it was kind of sad or it was kind of happy and I write reasonably well mm. into something that is gripping and compelling. We, we have this building in Dubai that's called the Museum of the Future. And if you get a chance, just plug Museum of the Future Dubai into a Google search and you'll see this building. And it is a beautiful silver squashed donut covered in Arabic writing on the outside. It's enormous, it's gorgeous. And the thing is, the more unique the building of your memoir is going to be, the more difficult it will be to build, the more craft will be required mm -hmm. to make it happen. But a simple building, you know, they can throw up a simple building in like a month, a month and a half, because sticking to a plot structure that helps you navigate through your memoir is so much easier to make a compelling story than develop that National Book Award winning prose. You know, by all means, mm -hmm. write the best you can, get better at your writing on the sentence level. But the less plot driven your work is, the better you have to write. The more plot driven your work, the more compelling your story, the more you'll get a little bit of a pass on whether or not your mm. writing craft is award winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that because I do, I am actually teaching something uh, coming up and I have a whole line about that you know it's great if you can write beautifully but that's not like not all of us can that's the good news and the bad news because I wouldn't say on the sentence level for example I write beautifully mm -hmm. I don't know that I'm ever going to be like that right poetic and beautiful but it's the other things that I can bring to the table hopefully exactly and it's just like watching a movie there's there's actors who we watch because they immerse themselves in the role and we only see the role you know people like Daniel Day-Lewis, people like Val Kilmer. Then there's actors who we watch because they're charismatic and they're exciting and we want to watch the actor in that situation, like Angelina Jolie, like Brad Pitt, like Tom Cruise. We're not watching to see if Tom Cruise totally becomes his character. Right, We're watching right. because he is charismatic and charming. And the same thing happens with writing craft. Some people are going to be read because they are beautiful writers, but there's not that many of them. That's why we know Joan Didion by name. Lots of people are going to be read because their story is compelling, because their plot is well-structured, because their experiences have become interesting in being formed into a story. Mm, mm, mm. See, you just like come out with this stuff. Like, I bet you say brilliant things all the time. Like, in, <laughs> in, like, do you, you just like, like you already wrote the book, you already know these things, and then you have just these metaphors and analogies that really drive it home. Like, Oh, so good to Thank talk with you. you about this. Yeah. So, okay, I hope we can still finish the sentence in, totally. a, in a different way. Let me know. Yeah. So the number one thing, I want you to finish the sentence. I have two of these for you. The number one thing I wish memoirists working on their manuscripts would keep in mind is? You need a compelling story. 
And it's worth it to spend some time building that plot framework. Even if you are a pantser who writes your whole first draft without any planning at all, it is so incredibly helpful to go back and apply a traditional dramatic structure. And the places where your work doesn't match that structure, ask yourself why. Why is it important that normally there would be a big turning point here and my book instead the girl takes a nap in the library? <laughs> I'd love you to finish this sentence, which I wonder if it's going to be different. The number one thing I wish writers, and I mean like across genre, writers would keep in mind is? It will take significantly longer than you think. It will be more work than you expect. And it still won't sell very many copies. So to no. motivate I'm yourself. I'm actually like, I'm like <laughs> grabbing my face right now. Like I'm crying. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, not at all. So find out what matters beyond that, beyond sales, beyond churning out a creative project. You know, what I really needed when I wrote Seven Drafts was a traditionally published book and the power to raise my prices and be able to give stuff away for free. What I need with the young adult novel that I'm writing is proof to myself that I can write and finish a publishable novel. And neither of those goals depend on people buying my book. Those are, those are things that matter to me, and I will be able to achieve those things or fail at them, regardless of what everybody else does, regardless of whether or not they pay money for my book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about editing as we wind down um, this time together. What should writers be aware of when they hire an editor? Are there warning signs that maybe they shouldn't put too much weight into the advice they're getting? Is there anything you can offer listeners? Always get a sample edit. Some editors do sample edits for free. Some of them will charge you for the sample edit, but you are getting you know, a sample of their work, and there will be tips in there that you can apply to your book as a whole. When you get back your sample edit, fix everything you can fix in your manuscript as a whole. So for example, if the sample edit notices, hey, you always confuse rain and rain, which is really challenging when you're talking about kings and horses, you go through your whole manuscript and you look at every single instance of rain and rain and you fix them all. You know, and sometimes it's a little bit more complex than that where they say, oh, you can actually start the scene like a page and a half later than you have started the scene. And you go and you look at every scene. Am I getting in too early in these scenes? Am I explaining too much at the beginning? That will make sure that when you go for a full edit, the editor is fixing stuff that you couldn't fix yourself. And it will be, you know, better value for money. The other mm -hmm. thing I would say is, you know you've got the right editor when your little writer soul pops up and says, oh, I thought I was going to get away with that, but I kind of knew I couldn't. When you've got that <laughs> I got caught feeling, that's how you know, yes, this editor has helpful information to give you. This editor has useful information to give you. Oh. I love that. I love that. I felt that the little writer's soul popping mm -hmm. up. Um, so is there anything else, um, any other part of the writing life or publishing arena or both that you, you see writers often get disillusioned about? Well, I think people get depressed that there are so many gatekeepers involved. And often people will pursue self-publishing because they are angry or resentful that they are not getting past gatekeepers. 
But very often, gatekeepers exist for a reason. There's a reason your manuscript needs to be in the fourth or fifth or seventh draft. There's a reason your work needs to be correctly spelled. There's a reason your cover needs to be professionally designed. And that's not to say that you cannot execute all of those things in self-publishing. There are some really fantastic self-published books out there. But there are also people who see, oh, well, I'm being kept out, I'm being kept out, and, and, and that's very often not the case. What makes your book sellable to an agent, to a publisher, is also what's gonna make it sellable when you're selling it yourself. And so if you feel like you're being kept behind the gate, look at what are the elements you really love about the books on the shelf you want to share and try to bring those elements into your work. And then you can look at, well, is it better to self-publish? Is it faster to self-publish? Or now that I have brought in more stuff into my book, do I want to give those gatekeepers another shot? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So as we end, what are some of your favorite memoirs that you go to again and again or that have really helped you along the way? So I'm really digging right now Anna Kendrick's Scrappy Little Nobody, which is a mm -hmm. series of essays about her experience in Hollywood. I'm in the middle of Dinty W. Moore's uh, To Hell With It, which is about growing up Catholic and under the guilt of religion. And it's funny and it's quite short, so it's a very fast read. Really love Jenny Lawson's Broken in the Best Possible Way. I kind of got assigned to read it because I was her conversation partner at a literary festival last year. And it's all about mental health and the medical system and hilarious. And I also am really enjoying Maria Konnikova's The Biggest Bluff, which is all about how she learned how to play professional poker, but also about how she learned how to make better decisions and the things that humans do that undercut our decision making. But I have one little secret, which is I don't really read very many memoirs. I don't really <laughs> like very many memoirs. And that's why I'm good at editing it. Because oh my gosh, I am wait, not gonna wait. Be <laughs> We buried the lead. We buried the lead. I'm okay, go ahead, go ahead. I've I've allowed an intruder into the conversation. Go ahead, I, tell me. I read memoir because I need to for a class or I need an example of something I'm going to teach. And that's why I'm good at editing at it because I'm not gonna be swept away by the beauty of the story. Gosh, I'm real sorry your whole family died in a plane crash, but this scene has no dramatic arc, so let's fix that. Oh you know, I mean, that's a real story there, real story yeah. there. And the writer looked at me and said, oh my God, I'm so tired of people crying in workshop and not giving me any feedback. <laughs> You know, and it's the same as like I, when I was in the circus, I did a lot of circus guest residencies at schools where we would go into a school, we would work with between 50 and 100 kids, grades K through 12, and at the end of two weeks, the kids pick, put up a circus. I don't like children. I don't like children <laughs> at all. I don't want any, but that's why I'm good at teaching them because I'm not yeah. focused on their charm of being a child. I'm focused on working with them as a colleague to get that trapeze move that they really need to nail. And so I think it's actually a bit of my secret weapon that I don't love memoir as a genre because that lets me take that extra little step of remove and go, okay, what's gonna make this so good that even I'm glad I read it? Wow, amazing, okay. You got the scoop. <laughs> <laughs> I got the scoop. Um, I want to know real quick, did, yeah. did those kids love you? They adore me. 
They really right. do. And and honestly, like I love certain children because I love watching them achieve. I love watching them grow as performers. And I love it when the kids feel like they like me enough to play organized pranks on me. I think that's really sweet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. But that's yeah. always a good sign. Yeah. Children I is a category. I... I can let them go. No, I knew they would love you because you don't care. I got it. It's perfect. <laughs> it's like um, cats. It's just yes, like cats. Yes, I was just going to say that. It's like cats. Exactly. And definitely like teenagers. Okay. So where can people find you? How, how should they reach, reach you, read you, all that stuff? Well, the easiest way to find all the stuff I'm doing is alisonkwilliams.com, and that has links to just about everything I do. I have some really fun and interesting classes coming up early next year. I'm doing a small group class called Project Memoir, which is going to be uh, six weeks, eight writers putting together memoirs to a publishable stage, and I'm going to do a project novel as well, because uh, I'm really inspired by Tim Gunn, and so we're going to do stuff with, you know, specific creative projects that must be completed every week but allisonkwilliams.com and then I'm also on all of the socials at gorilla memoir and that's like Che Guevara not the ape <laughs> yeah. okay I will have those in the show notes and I thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your experience with me. It just, this was just wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I, I am just so awed at what you have done, Ronit, with taking your very fascinating personal story and turning it into a compelling book. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's like coming from you, man. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.